Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Parent, she said, um, that's nice, but I will not be able to watch that because it's City Lights, it has City Lights, which is like Skylights, but more radical. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes Skylight look like Amazon, right? That's what City Light, but you know what I mean, not that, anyway. So, uh, she said, we can't, um, I'm not gonna, I can't watch your show because you have to buy Prime, I guess, to do it. And I said, but no, what you could do is you could do the 30-day free trial, watch it, and then cancel, and then you'll show them. <laughs> so, who knows if Elaine Katzenberger will ever watch Transparent. Um, so this is my book, um, Cha-Ching, um, and basically teaches people how to not have a job and win by gambling, um, or not. Um, all you need to know, really, is I'm going to read from the end of the book. Um, the main character has um, fallen in love with a person named Marisol, and um, Marisol was a stripper for one night because she lived upstairs from the strip club, and um, they both maybe have some problems with alcohol and pills and other things. And um, we're now at the Bellevue Dental Clinic. Does anyone know Bellevue Hospital in New York? You don't want to get your teeth taken care of there. <laughs> or anything else, really. So let us go there, you and I. Um, Theo walked into Bellevue and followed a series of signs, hallways, and elevators until she got to the dental clinic. She signed her name on a clipboard and looked for an open chair in the waiting room filled with sad-looking people sitting in bright orange chairs. The receptionist was behind a thick plastic window with a cartoon mouse hole opening at the bottom where patients grabbed a blue pen tied to a long string. If Theo had been a Martian sent to Earth, asked to report back about her findings of New York City, she would say it was a place where employed people sit behind clear bulletproof plastic to avoid being shot by impatient people. She took an open seat behind an older white woman with blonde curly hair and a rose tattooed on her wrist. She was probably in her 40s but looked 60 and reminded Theo of someone in a crystal meth ad campaign. She once had seen a billboard with two 30-year-old women side by side, one middle class and one homeless, the homeless woman looking a million years old. In addition to being an addict, the woman in front of her also looked like a hooker, the street corner kind, a street walker. What an ugly phrase. When Theo sat down, the hooker turned around and gave her a jovial smile. Theo acknowledged her nodding. She didn't feel like talking to anyone and pulled Crime and Punishment out of her coat pocket. She's been reading Crime and Punishment the whole book. Oh, she just she thought, she thought she'd get right with life. She'd quit drinking and read, get a gym membership and read the complete works of Fyodor Dostoevsky. But she has not made it past page one of Crime and Punishment. We sell that here, Noel. He's, he left. He's like playing Tetris in the office. What are you doing, Noel? Are you over there? We do sell Crime and Punishment. Would you call Dostoevsky a good writer or a mediocre one? Brilliant. Brilliant. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, where were we? 
He didn't have to be a lesbian walking the earth, though, did he? Noel. <laughs> what are you doing? I want to know what you are. You, are you counting book sales? What are you already returning copies of Cha-Ching? Are you? What's happening? I like interactive. We're in like. We're, so how often are we together in a room? Let's be together. Okay. Come sit. I want to just no no. Yeah. You guys, Noel's an amazing writer. And how long have you worked here? Uh, since 2000. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm done teasing you. Those glasses look amazing on you. <laughs> if, I, if I wasn't gay, <laughs> I would be gay with you. <laughs> okay, onward, onward. <laughs> she didn't feel like talking to anyone and pulled crime and punishment out of her coat pocket. She caught a whiff of Marisol's perfume when she opened it. Then for the one millionth time, she turned to page one on an exceptionally hot evening early in July. Marisol had been a stripper for a single night, which made her a sex worker. Sex worker had become such a liberal arts college phrase. If Theo could do a billboard series, she'd photograph two women side by side holding crime and punishment. One woman would be the Bellevue streetwalker, and the other a recent graduate of Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> with perfect teeth who'd done phone sex for a summer in order to write her thesis. Underneath would be text that said, which of these women married an investment banker? <laughs> Even with her head bent down, Theo could feel the woman in front of her craning her neck back and making obvious gestures to see what she was reading. So finally she gave up and held the book cover up so the streetwalker could see it. She wanted to stop thinking streetwalker in case the woman had ESP. She didn't want to hurt her feelings. The woman smiled wide and read the title slowly like a child. Crime and punishment. That sounds about right. Theo gave her a smile, the same kind she was sure many people had given her before moving past. Is that a book about this place, the woman asked, and then laughed wildly. Because I've been waiting two hours for a root canal, so this sure feels like crime and punishment. She raised her pilled out voice to say two hours, as if by doing so she could aim it through the mouse hole opening into the receptionist's window. Just then a police officer walked in and handcuffed a prisoner to an empty chair in the front of the room while he spoke to the receptionist. Everyone stared. Now that's some crime and punishment, the hooker whispered to Theo, slapping the front of her book like it was her knee. A few people stared. Theo was beginning to like the woman. This is where they take you if they can't fix your teeth at Rikers, the hooker whispered. Theo watched one of the prisoner's pinky fingers twitch after being cuffed. I'm Daisy, she said, extending her hand. Theo, Theo said, shaking it. The receptionist called Theo's name and she was buzzed through a heavy door. The clinic felt like a juvenile detention center, each door requiring a person to be buzzed in and every piece of glass unbreakable. A short Asian woman in a white smock led her down a hallway filled with rushing dental students and scrubs and into a room where Theo was instructed to sit down in a chair. The nurse reclined it until she was mostly lying down and it reminded her of when she was sleeping in her truck just after arriving in Yonkers. I'm going to start your IV line now. You might want to look away, the nurse said. She slapped Theo's arm until a vein bulged, and Theo watched as she pushed the needle into it. I've never heard of pulling four wisdom teeth while a person's awake, Theo said. Oh, we do it all the time, the nurse said. You won't feel a thing. Theo gave her a skeptical smirk. You might hear some things, the nurse started. Theo raised her eyebrows. Sometimes you can hear ripping or crunching if the tooth gets caught in the pliers or they have a hard time getting it out, the nurse continued. Do you have any questions? 
Theo shook her head. Okay, we'll get this started in a few minutes. I look forward to hearing my teeth ripped out of my skull, Theo mumbled. The nurse flipped a few switches, adjusted Theo's IV, and left the room. She waited in the cold room, wishing Marisol had been next to her when the nurse told her about the crushing sounds so they could exchange horrified looks. She was falling in love with Marisol, whether it was a good idea or not. She felt a pang of sadness that she wasn't there. She wanted to tell her the frog joke. The nurse came back into the room. Theo decided to tell the nurse the frog joke instead. How are you feeling, she asked Theo. Kind of weird, Theo said. That's good. That means the drugs are kicking in. Drugs? We have some muscle relaxants running through your IV to get you ready for the surgery. She thought it was crazy no one had told her they were putting drugs through her IV, that she was slightly sad and now wanted to tell her frog joke made sense. She enjoyed the free drugs coursing through the veins. It felt like justice. Want to hear a joke, she asked the nurse. Sure, the nurse said, fiddling with Theo's IV. Another nurse walked into the room and smiled at Theo before putting dental tools on a platter. Do you want to hear a joke, Theo said to the new nurse, who was chubby and had a mushroom haircut that reminded Theo of one of her high school English teachers. I love jokes, the new nurse said. Well, Theo started. This frog walks into a bank and goes up to the teller. And the teller has a nameplate that says Patty Black. And the frog says to the teller, I'd like to take out a loan. I'd like to buy a new lily pad. But all I have for collateral is this pink porcelain unicorn. The door opened again, and a tall black man with a shaved head wearing aqua scrubs walked over to Theo. Hello, I'm Dr. Jones, he said, extending his hand. I'm going to be taking care of you today. Theo shook his hand. She was just in the middle of a joke, the older nurse said. You look like a model, Theo told Dr. Jones. Your face is perfect. He seemed surprised and then said, the trick is a good moisturizer. <laughs> All the nurses laughed. Oh my God, Theo thought, did I luck out and get a gay dentist? When she smiled, her chest felt tight, but she felt perfectly high from the muscle relaxants. She loved her new dental family. <laughs> the only thing that could make it better was if she could have her teeth pulled with naked Marisol straddling her stomach. Let's finish that joke and we'll get those teeth out, Dr. Jones said, smiling good-naturedly. You're a good person, Theo told him. He smiled. You are. She insisted, because you work at the poor person's hospital and because you have good person eyes. The frog was trying to get a loan, the nurses prompted. Oh, right. Well, the frog gave Patty Black a pink porcelain unicorn and said, I'd like to take out a loan for a lily pad because this is all I have for collateral. So Patty Black, Patty Black takes the unicorn and says to the frog, I need to ask my manager, and goes back to her manager's office and whispers, there's this frog out here right now that wants to take out a loan for a new lily pad, but all he has for collateral is this pink porcelain unicorn. What should I do? And the manager says, it's a knick-knack, Patty Black. Give the frog a loan. <laughs> Everyone laughed. That's the whole reason I wrote this book, was to tell that joke. Everyone laughed. And after a few minutes, Dr. Jones lowered the mask over his face, but Theo could see his eyes still smiling. He leaned over her and said, ready to get started? Theo watched him pick up the giant needle on the tray to numb her mouth. You're just going to feel a little pinch, he said. She opened her mouth and felt him fiddle with her teeth, pressing on them with the latex fingers. When he leaned over, she could smell his cologne. It was faint, like leather or a saddle. Then she felt the needle go into her gum. 
A couple more spots, he said, shooting the Novocaine in. Theo wanted to tell him how nice his cologne smelled. She tried to push the words past his prodding fingers. You smell good, she tried to say, but his fingers were still in her mouth. What's that, Dr. Jones said, removing his hand. Theo paused a second, trying to redistribute the saliva. Your cologne smells good, like leather or a saddle or something. I'm not hitting on you, Theo blurted. I'm gay. Everyone in the room became frozen. She watched Dr. Jones flick his good person eyes at the nurse, who looked like Theo's high school English teacher, and she walked out of the room. She waited for Dr. Jones to say, I'm gay too. We're going to give you another couple minutes to let the drugs work, and then I'll be back and we'll get those teeth out, he said. Okay, Theo said, ashamed. The other nurse followed the doctor out of the room, and Theo found herself alone and unbearably sad. Don't leave, please, she wanted to say. Everyone was already gone, and she was left in a room that smelled like dental fumes. Theo heard someone scream, fuck you, so loud it penetrated the series of locked doors from here to the waiting room, and then she realized it was the streetwalker. She tried to stop the first tears from coming, but she couldn't, and then she began to sob into the thin paper covering her chair. When Dr. Jones returned to a crying Theo, he nodded to the nurses, and they flipped off all the machines. He said, we're going to do this a different day when we can put you all the way under. Please, Theo pleaded, you have to pull them today. The nurse looked at her sympathetically, but had removed the IV and was now pressing a square of gauze where it had been. I'm not crazy, Theo said. I'm just in love. The words fell out of her mouth pathetically. The nurse lifted Theo's fingers and pressed them into the gauze. She didn't want them to think she was crazy and wheel her over to the other part of Bellevue that was the mental hospital. She wasn't crazy. The world was crazy. Who'd ever heard of handcuffing prisoners to dental office waiting room chairs? That's it. Thank you, Ellie. Thomas Page McBee was the masculinity expert for Vice and writes the columns Self-Made Man for the Rumpus and The American Man for Pacific Standard. His essays and reportage have appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, uh, theatlantic.com, Salon, and BuzzFeed, where he was a regular contributor on gender issues. Uh, he lives in New York City, where he works as the editor of Special Projects at Quartz and is currently at work on a book about Modern American Masculinity. We're so very happy to have him here today. Please welcome Thomas Page McBee. Hi. I'm so glad to be here. And I love LA, and I love Ali. Uh, now I love Skylight. Um, so, And I love a lot of you in this room, so I'm glad we're all here together. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from my book because uh, it's a suspense story, so I don't want to give too much away. Um, and then I'll read you a short rumpus essay. Um, and I guess all you need to know, I'm going to read from the prologue and kind of jump around a little bit. But there are two main events that define this book. Um, there's the abuse um, I ha endured growing up. Um, and then there's this mugging that happened to me in 2010. Uh, that was really scary. And so those two events are referred to repeatedly in this excerpt. Um, also, um, it's a book about transitioning uh, from being a, you know, a young adult to being an adult, um, and also from being female to male. So South Carolina, August 2010, 29 years old. What makes a man? It's not that I haven't studied them. Their sinew, their slang, their beautiful bristle, 
But before I was held at gunpoint on a cold April day, I couldn't have told you. A real man. A family man. The Marlboro man. Man up. The man in the mirror. I loved that Michael Jackson song growing up. Used to forget my girl hips. Used to sing it to my best imagination of myself. What makes a man? The need to know led me to my father's hometown in hot, damp South Carolina. The story starts there because that's where I went when I could no longer afford to leave the question alone. To let it rear up every few years when I'd had too much to drink and it was just me and my reflection and my hungry ghosts. And so I steered my rental through the swampy south with my cap pulled low. I had that teen boy swagger. Scars like smiles across my chest and a body I was just beginning to love. But the story also begins the night I almost died, back in April of 2010. And in 1985, when my father became a monster. And in 1990, when my mom found out he was one. Men, she'd said then. And I learned to say it the same way. A lemon in my mouth. In South Carolina, I could smell, I could smell it through my open window. Alligators and secrets. The embers of Sherman's March. The Ku Klux Klan. My father's farm burning. It smelled like my animal fear and the spicy deodorant I used to cover it. Men, I thought, with that old bitterness, but I already knew that my body was shifting. In fact, that's why I was there. A good man is hard to find. The windshield blurred, the road was inky, the rain biblical. The cheap motel off the highway seemed like not such a hot idea after I passed my fifth gun wrap to pick up, but there wasn't any turning back. Once a body is in motion, it stays in motion. My mom's a physicist. She told me that. The truth is, this is a ghost story. No, this is an adventure story. This is an adventure story about how I quit being a ghost. So, this is Pittsburgh, 1990, 10 years old. I could tell that dad charmed people. Everyone gravitated to his lilting southern accent, his awe-shuck smile, and his good manners. He seemed youthful, refined, and so it was easy to overlook his silver halo, forget that he was in his 50s, way older than mom. But people can hold their true selves at bay for only so long. I knew that from Batman. <laughs> Today he looked worn out, exposed, waiting for us in the leather chair, his remaining hair unkempt, gray stubble crowding his face. His knuckles were thick, swollen as an old man's, and he wore his exercise clothes, a gray track suit, coffee stained. He looked like the raggedy dog he'd once shot in the butt with a BB gun for crossing onto our property one too many times. What are you doing, Mom had said on the sunny porch that afternoon a few years before, her voice laced with alarm. Maybe she'd never seen that side of him, but I knew it intimately. And how he'd look when he turned around, smiling that dumb, menacing smile. Of course one man can become another. Where two sides meet comes the potential for ghosts. Dissonant smears, rips in the story. It was only his ass, he'd said, in that gentle accent, unloading the BBs carefully into his palm, just teaching him a lesson. The dog never did come back. Crocodile tears, Mom said, the day after Dad apologized. I didn't know what that meant, but it made me picture him slithering toward me, so I shut my eyes. I could just cut his brakes, she'd said, nodding towards the sedan in the airless garage. We were in the van beside it, underneath a swinging light cord. I stared at his car like it might rear up to defend itself. Here's a story I don't remember. In the bathroom, I told my red hairbrush about Dad. Had I wanted someone to hear? Sometimes we are mysteries, even to ourselves. My live-in babysitter walked by, pressed her ear to the door. She held me like a big, gangly baby and asked careful questions in her honey voice. Try to forgive him, she'd said on the day, last day I ever saw her, holding my hand and fingering the cross around her neck. 
she must have felt guilty, Mom sighed when Susan left in the middle of the night, speeding off in her sporty Mazda. A loneliness settled in my chest. I was an astronaut, floating farther and farther away. The truth was, I kind of wanted Mom to kill him. I watched her in the half-light, knowing she wouldn't. I thought that no one could really ever forgive anyone, and I looked at her face, unfamiliar, trembling, clenched. I worried the hole in the knee of my jeans. What would a normal kid say? Maybe you'd get in trouble, I offered. She looked at me, her face crumpling. Hey, she said, pulling my hand away from the fraying fabric. You're safe now. We were quiet for a minute, but I thought about the scramble of words. How if you repeat something enough times, the meaning disappears. Safe, I thought. Safe, 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 safe. Where I grew up, in western Pennsylvania, deers were hunted to keep the population down. Still, we'd put out salt licks and watch whole families wander by. I found I could open the door and approach them as long as I moved slowly enough. They'd lock eyes with me, ears pricked, stuck as if stopped by time. I'd get closer and closer, five yards, four, three. I'd reach a hand out greedily and, like magic, their eyes would pop open a little, their bodies hunching into themselves. Then, always, they'd spring awake and bound away, big and graceful, alive. There was an invisible line, a wire I'd trip, and it was different each time. Four yards, two. Everybody has a different threshold, but we all know how to run eventually. Most people don't realize that. We never forget how to escape. California, September 2010, 29 years old. Back home in Oakland, I ran. I ran to the summit of Piedmont Cemetery and watched the lights of the Bay Bridge twinkle through the fog. I ran down to Lake Merritt and past the courthouse that housed my mugger's pretrial hearings every month. I knew because I followed the case closely. But the more I ran, the farther away I felt from the clarity of that night in April. I was running away from something else. My body knew. My body led me to my laptop late into the night where, illuminated by the monitor's sickly light, I read about the effects of testosterone, lower voice, facial hair, easier muscle gain, redistributed fat. I watched endless videos of guys a decade younger than me injecting a one-inch ne needle into their thighs. Risks include liver problems, cancer, diabetes, relationships. I closed the laptop, put it away. I ran loops and more loops. I looked for myself in the burn of my calves, the gasp of my lungs. It's not a choice, trans men on YouTube said over and over. I was born in the wrong body. Truth isn't a binary, though. Everything, in the end, is a choice. Still, I got it. I was compelled, carried by a force as strong as the one that propelled my legs down 41st Street, away from my mugger. It was the same drive that pointed me to South Carolina. It was what kept my heart open despite all the reasons I knew to seal it tight against the world. There is a great beauty in what we know but can't explain. You can call it faith. I do. So that's a little bit from the book. And then I write this column for The Rumpus uh, called Self-Made Man, and I just thought it might be nice to read you guys um, the latest one, uh, which is about tenderness and violence. It's called Tenderness Too. This summer, three years into my life as a man, it finally fully feels like my body is flowering into the truth of it. It's scruffier, sweatier, more embodied. It's melted gum on the subway platform, hair curling against pomade's mus mushy muscle, sloshy late night Pim's cups on my dusky rooftop, the sweat of held hands and damp beds and watery iced coffee cups blurred into photos I scroll through to try to pinpoint exactly when everything changed. 
There's not been a tipping point, more a collection of knife's edge moments. I gather them and build them into this house with its shimmering morning summer sun blasting us awake after last night's baffling fight and the choice we made on waking to turn toward each other and kiss clear through to the other side of it. Tough and tender, she says, my beard scratching in her hands. I've never been a guy falling in love, but I've asked for years what makes a man, and here she is with my answer. I wake at dawn most days. I stay still and watch sunrise shadows move across my curtains and think I paid for this life, not just the $60 a month and the weekly oily ritual, the alcohol swabs and the gauze and the shot in the leg. I traded a body and a careful plan for fire escape views of the supermoon. This city and all its jigsawed bodies, this soft animal beside me, one in nine million, the math of our meeting impossible, and yet here we are. I traded hours on the rowing machine for this hard chest and the rough pillow it made for this woman who's fallen for my cat, both of them belly up and exposed in the shifting light, all three of us shepherding each other through into this glorious morning. She runs hot, she says, and she's right. She's also like me, rough and honest. A few weeks ago, I was on the phone with her in Bryant Park, having the kind of intimate whisper fight that's many tentacled and mysteriously metaphorical about each other, but also a wormhole. All of our past lives and their bad spells, zombie rising. I hung up the phone and sat and mangled a coffee cup in a shitty cafe on 6th Avenue, adrenaline metal in my mouth. Do you still want me to come over, she texted. Of course, I wrote back. I didn't know what to say that night when she showed up at my door, so I asked her if she'd trim my beard. It made a different kind of sense. Let's try this again. Here's my throat and a sharp thing. She sat on the counter and pulled my jaw to her, and I kept my eyes closed, letting myself go. I thought, what is life but this turn, this edge, this moment already slipping by, already gone? We need these edges, and we need to push through them. Without the boxing gloves, without the spangle of nerves lighting up when I hear a guy threaten his girlfriend, without the mirror me I see each morning, the startle of the stranger I've become. I not have the moments that fall into place on the other side. The hot breath, the fist connecting to the bag, the fraternity of the guy on the train platform laughing with me about the weight of my luggage. The truth is, like you, I've got nothing but time. Like you, I'm nothing if not a house of cards and a shifting relationship to my own vulnerability. My body is expensive, violent, priceless. I paid in rough exchanges with meatheads and friends who fell quietly away and blood tests and shots and shots and shots to wake up shirtless, to wake up a shirtless pillow on this hot July morning on the Lower East Side. What changed was that I wanted more than anything to be alive, and this summer I see that I'm nothing less. To live is to expose your body to risk, like crosswalks and anesthesia and a woman who sees through you and tells you so. It's train tracks and trust and words like knives across telephone lines, and then those same mouths in real time, the jump cuts of new beginnings alongside bodies like mine, jagged with scars and holding sharp things to each other's throats. All of it, every second of it, a tenderness, too. Thank you. That was terrific. That was wonderful, the both of you. Can you come up here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, do we have questions for our writers? Like, how was it working with City Lights? I love City Lights. Me too. I cried when it was my book party. 
I, Did you cry? I didn't cry, but Testosterone. I... Testosterone? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll dry it up. Fair enough. Oh. <laughs> I cried. It's not on. Funny. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> City Lights was really great. They were extremely supportive and just... I mean, it was like having a whole team of incredible people behind me like the entire time, and I, I feel really grateful, so... I just remember being a ch like child moving to San Francisco to find gay people and walking up the street looking into City Lights. So then to be like a book in their window was like really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they gave me a sweatshirt. Did they give you a sweatshirt? I got a t-shirt. Oh, yeah. It's like well, you get the team uniform. It's like you're a sweatshirt. on. I think Peter was feeling generous. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> waka waka waka. I love Fuzzy Bear. How do you feel about Fozzie Bear? I feel good. I, he is so lost in the, like, we're, we're not talking about him enough. I adore him. Anything else? Do you think you roasted the knick-knack, heavy-black joke? I feel like... What was the question? I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember where I learned that joke. It's the best joke ever, though. I remember you doing it. It's the best joke ever. Except for how does a witch tell time with a witch watch? <laughs> oh, man. Fuzzy Bear YouTube videos? No one? You seen that? Did you watch any of those late at night? What? The Fuzzy Bear YouTube videos? I've known Thomas a long time. Yeah. Can I tease you? Yeah, go Okay, you yeah. can tease me too. Yeah, all right. You can start with the herpes sores on my face if you want. Maybe you talk about writing or something. Do you have a question, ma'am? I have a question. Yes. Can you talk about things that you're currently working on? Thanks, Beth, for steering us. Yeah, yeah. steering the ship. <laughs> It's a Capricorn question. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a lot of people want things, but they don't want to participate in them. Do you know what I mean? We want this to be different, but we're just sitting here. Do you want to talk about what you're working on? Sure. Yeah. Um, what am I working on? I was working on a series of poems. Um, I have a novel that's been unfinished for 11 years that I'm not working on. Um, a couple of scripts. I have to say that in LA. A few scripts. That's just um, shitty scripts. What about you? I'm writing a book about um, modern American masculinity. It's like a survey. Um, and so I'm writing this column for the Pacific Standard that's it's Gonzo-style reporting, where I go into homosocial male spaces and then report back. Um, and that's been really fun and interesting uh, and enlightening and sad and enraging. Um, so, so far, so good. And so that'll be a, a whole book, hopefully, soon. What's a homosocial male space? Space of all men. Yeah. So like a gay bathhouse, for example, was the last one. Um, and that was really fun to do. <laughs> Homo social space. Mm -hmm. They cover that at Griffith Observatory? <laughs> ah, waka waka! <laughs> Anyone else? Hi. You guys, it's a famous writer in the back in a pink shirt. Do they... So, well, do we have Carolina's book here? We do. We didn't have that actually. Oh, my God. Buy this book tonight Definitely if you don't book. buy ours. Yeah. Actually, buy, all of them. buy hers instead of mine. It's called Welcome to the Twin Palms. It's, how did it come to the... What is it called? I didn't read it. But I heard it's amazing. It's amazing. It's a really good book. What else? Well, 
that? Everything is surprising to me, you know. Um, but I think uh, I'm actually, I feel, uh, you know, I work for the internet as well as writing for the internet as well as uh, having written a book. And I, I'm always actually pleasantly surprised by people. I think um, uh, I'm very lucky that I haven't run into a lot of, you know, negativity, I guess. Like, my whole theory is that if I'm really honest about how my journey really is it the book is really about transitioning from into being an adult which I feel like most people can really relate to and connect to that concept and I think that in in my experience like that's what people connect to about my work so um, I guess I expected to be surprised more negatively but I've been pleasantly surprised primarily in writing about the things I write about so uh, I don't have anything to say <laughs> <laughs> I think you had a question though oh, when do you write Well, Jerry, I feel like I'm best with the writing schedule, which is why I avoid it. Hi, Sarah Fran Wisby. We're just loaded with authors That's here exciting. today. Um, I don't know. If I wrote every day from 10 to 2, I would be so much more mentally healthy. But instead, I just follow postseason baseball. I mean, we're missing baseball right now, by the way, the <laughs> Giants. And um, stuff like that. But if I work, I, I'm a loser at past 3 p.m., so I need to get everything important done in life before two. I think the schedule thing is actually really important. I wrote this whole book on it, um, basically on a train to and from Providence to Boston and back. Um, and that was really helpful because after a while my brain would just kick into gear at like 7 a.m. Um, and then again at whatever, 6 p.m. Um, but now I'm not taking a train anymore, so I do try to write just on the weekends. Um, New York is really killer with the schedule. It's really hard to write at night. So, yeah. I used to read more books when I lived in New York because you were on the subway. Yeah. It's hard to read a book and drive. I'm not getting yeah. the most out of it. Waka waka! <laughs> people do it though. People do. I've yeah. seen people do it in traffic. Yeah. yeah. Books on tape. Speaking of both of my books, are, I'm recording on audio next week. So you can just buy them and listen to me and go waka waka. I won't, they won't let me. <laughs> Are you regretting this, Noel? Am I being moved to mediocre writer night? Absolutely not. Did you have to audition for, to, to be your voice? I've heard other writers have to actually audition to do their own audition. To be the own, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, could I you really just, see her having to audition to be her own? <laughs> I, I couldn't see it. For me to audition to no, be you me? you need to be, yeah. Who else getting meta. Be, yeah. <laughs> Who, Who else could be, be me? No one. Susie Orman reads some of her books. Yeah. It's shocking when they're not reading, when you know Susie Orman's voice and then someone else reads Susie Orman's book. Yeah. I, can, I, can, I can hear you in my head when I read your books. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? else have a question? Are you saying LA seems to be a less vibrant queer scene? Um, yeah, or like trans inclusive. It's just like less, like, I feel like in Portland or Minneapolis, it's just like a big part of it. I think it's more spread out here. It's like San Francisco is like you're just running into people all the time, and LA, like, everyone's like, but everyone's leaving San Francisco to come here, like That's me. True. By the way, the only, the worst reading I ever did in my life was in Minneapolis at a, a women. <laughs> It was a bookstore called Amazon Bookstore. <laughs> Don't know why they weren't laughing. And no, I mean, it was like, 
I could have been, oh, God, I, it's still a career low light. In, in Minneapolis, though, everyone's together. They're riding bicycles through the snow to potlucks, right? And they're doing yeah. these things. I have a lot of friends in <laughs> Minneapolis. I know how it rolls there. I just feel like there's that here, but I just feel like it's more spread out because people are in, there's no, where is the center of Los Angeles? I, that's a mystery, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere and nowhere. Um, for me, I think, actually, a lot of this book came from having moved to New England from San Francisco, which actually was really disruptive culturally for me. And um, I was kind of forced immediately to have to make friends with people that I wouldn't normally have, like, thought I had a lot in common with around, um, you know, because I started to transition as soon as, literally the week after I arrived, I started my hormones. So um, I was, I had no queer community, and I was just sort of surrounded suddenly by, like, pregnant women who were the people I was really connecting to around my transition. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, so that was really helpful, actually, because it, and you know, I, I was very aware that like I wasn't finding my story online, and I wasn't finding my story in my immediate surroundings. So it, a, it made me want to write the story, but also it helped me see that there I had a lot of commonality around people who are different than me. Um, so both of those things made that book happen. So in that way, it was cool and useful. But I was really thrilled to go to New York and not feel like that anymore. And make my, one of my biggest um, like goals in New York was to make trans friends, and that was really exciting. <laughs> So. Anyone else? Going, going, go. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.